When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jason Whitlock here, filling in for Uncle Jimmy. Uh, wasn't able to do this today. His furniture finally arrived from Los Angeles. It's been a five-month wait, but it's finally here. So I'm doing a little fill-in work. Short week of shows. We took Monday Labor Day off. And so we started on Tuesday giving our thoughts about the death, the tragic death, overdose death of the actor Michael K. Williams, who played the part of Omar on The Wire. And you guys know how much I love The Wire, so I had a lot to say about Omar and the impact of The Wire. Take a listen. The greatest show in the history of television lost its greatest character, greatest ambassador, and greatest actor yesterday. Michael K. Williams died of an apparent drug overdose inside his Brooklyn apartment. On the iconic TV show, The Wire, Williams played the iconic role of Omar Little, a gay stick-up man who robbed drug dealers while adhering to an unshakable moral code. The Wire was a show about cops, drug dealers, drug users, and politicians. It produced an unforgettable star who was none of those things. Omar was a man with a code in a city, Baltimore, that violated every code. The show was gritty and profane. Omar never cursed. The police, politicians, and drug dealers were ruthlessly ambitious and when necessary, ruthlessly violent. Omar never put his gun on somebody who wasn't in the game. No show has ever done irony as well as The Wire. A thief, Omar Little, overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling heroin. In Baltimore's Den of Thieves, a thief played the role of savior, moral crusader, and wise man. Over the course of five seasons, Omar delivered as many classic lines as Hemingway and Twain. Man, money ain't got no owners, only spenders. That was from season four. You come at the king, you best not miss. That was from season one. A man gotta have a code, season four. I got the shotgun, you got the briefcase. It's all in the game though, right? Season two. How do you expect to run with the wolves come night when you spend all day sparring with the puppies? Season four. The Wire and Omar Little had a profound impact on my worldview. The creator, David Simon, produced a narrative art that explained America and its urban cities in a sophisticated manner. The Wire did what black rappers falsely claimed they were doing with commercial music. The show exposed the perversion of our drug war, the perversion of black culture, and the perversion of politics. Ice Cube, Ice-T, Tupac Shakur, Notorious B.I.G., Snoop Dogg, Dr. Dre, Jay-Z, 50 Cent, and all the other so-called CNNs of the ghetto exploited and glorified drug culture. They were and are melanated versions of the sleazy wire lawyer, Maurice Levy. They turned a profit off the suffering and degradation of the black poor. Simon, a former newspaperman, and his writing partner, Ed Burns, a former Baltimore detective, objected to the exploitation in the most powerful way possible. They shoved it in our faces. Most people looked away. The Wire never attracted a massive viewing audience. Hollywood's liberal tastemakers refused to bestow its highest honors on the show. The, the Wire never won an Emmy. Michael K. Williams never won an Emmy for his portrayal of Omar. 
the alleged champions of diversity and inclusion, the liberals who all just love black people, reserve their biggest accolades for The Sopranos and James Gandolfini, Breaking Bad and Brian Cranston, Mad Men and John Hamm. Rather ironic, isn't it? A show dependent on a mostly black cast and a storyline depicting the plight of mostly poor black people is widely regarded as the greatest show in TV history, but it was never recognized as that by Hollywood. How many Grammy Awards have been showered on the rappers who glorify gangster culture? Societies produce what they reward. The Wire didn't receive its flowers when it aired from 2002 until 2008. That's why 50 Cent's Power replaced The Wire. Power is a juvenile, unsophisticated celebration of drug dealers. Did Michael K. Williams receive his flowers while living? No. With far less than one-tenth of the screen time of Gandolfini's Tony Soprano, Cranston's Walter White, and Ham's Dom Draper, Williams created a character, Omar, the equal of any TV character in history. And has a character ever had more impact? Omar Little helped me and others overcome their negative perception of gay men. I grew up a meathead, a typical jock with a typical attitude towards gay men. Omar made me reevaluate my attitude. The content of his character was so strong that it made me evaluate the content of my character. I'm not endorsing homosexuality. It's no different from sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman. It's a sin. It's no different from the sex I've had outside of marriage with women. It's no different from my gluttony. Gay men have the same struggle with sin as I do. I foolishly used to think I was better than them, that my sin was more righteous than theirs. Omar Little taught me that all men are, cre are capable of adopting a code of conduct worthy of respect. Omar taught me that all men are created equal. He humbled me and made me a better person. For that, I will always be thankful for Michael K. Williams and The Wire. All right, when you walk through the jungle, you better watch your back. I beg your pardon. Ah, I love The Wire. All right, let's move on to Wednesday where I played off a theme from Michael K. Williams' death. The NAACP tweeted out, rest in power to Michael K. Williams. And I'm like, hey, when do we go from rest in peace to rest in power? I think this is an indication of the secularization, is that if that's a word, how be, we're becoming more secular, and <clears throat> the goal of resting in power. Can you really rest in power? Listen to this fire start. Our purpose in life and cultural norms are being redefined with little resistance and even less attention. The actor Michael K. Williams died Monday of a drug overdose. The NAACP Twitter feed wished that Williams rest in power. Rest in power is a new cultural norm being imposed by social media apps. It's no longer solely customary to wish the dead a restful peace. We now hope they attain power. Traditional RIP is now RIP. We think this change is insignificant. We think it's progress, a sign of an awakening to the limitations of peace and the righteousness of power. Only a fool would want peace when power is attainable. Peace is spiritual. Power is tangible. Rest in peace is the Latin phrase, rescuat in pace. It was found on a tombstone as early as the fifth century. It was a way for religious people to wish the dead eternal rest in heaven. By the 18th century and the foundation of America, rest in peace became ubiquitous within Western civilization. Christians adopted the turn of phrase and engraved it on nearly every tombstone. It reflected our values. We thought our purpose 
was to live a life that would lead us to rest peacefully with God. That purpose caused us to make many sacrifices in service to our fellow man. That purpose is at the root of American progress, the freeing of slaves, the suffrage of women, the destruction of Jim Crow, the adoption of child labor laws. The list is endless. Rest in peace meant and means far more than most people imagine. So does rest in power. It's the moving of goalposts. It's a redefinition of our life purpose. Pleasing God is no longer our goal. Acquiring power is our purpose. The phrase power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely is credited to British politician Lord Baron Acton in 1887. The truth is a British prime minister, William Pitt, coined the sentiment in 1770 in a speech to the UK House of Lords. He said, unlimited power is apt to corrupt the minds of those who possess it. When Lord Acton tweaked it, he added this conclusion, great men are almost always bad men. Let me translate that for you. Power corrupts, the people who pursue power are almost always bad people. Rest in power inspires people to pursue power. Rest in peace inspires people to pursue God. I can hear my critics screaming that I'm making too much of a casual turn of phrase. I would agree with my critics. If every Christian norm in American society wasn't under attack or hasn't already been tweaked, to meet secular norms. Merry Xmas, everyone. But I don't want to digress. How do you rest in power? What does that look like? What does it mean? I've rested peacefully. I've rested blissfully. I've rested in tranquility. Power? George Floyd, rest in power. He has far more power in death than life. In life, he was a drug addict a porn actor, a violent criminal, an irresponsible father. I'm sure he was at one time a well-intentioned person, but he made a mess of his life. He found no peace or power while alive. He ascended to martyrdom and attained great power. Dying at the knee of a white man granted George Floyd power. In death, he won America's new game of life. Power is our new obsession. Power by any means necessary. No wonder we're ruled by lies and deceit. The pursuit of peace with God requires reverence and obedience to truth. The pursuit of power requires reverence and obedience to falsehoods. RIP America, the death of our Judeo-Christian culture has been greatly exacerbated. Yeah. So you can't really rest in power if you don't rest in peace. That's the legacy or that's the lesson America needs to learn. Thursday, football is back. The NFL is back. Dak Prescott versus Tom Brady kicking off the NFL season. I think Dak is overpaid, and I think eventually that contract is going to be a weight and a burden too heavy for Dak to carry and expectations are going to get the best of Dak. Happiness is based on expectations. I'm not sure if Dak's going to be able to make everybody happy. Take a listen to this fire starter. The list of quarterbacks with contracts inferior to Dak Prescott's is long and accomplished. Tom Brady and his seven Super Bowl titles are on the list. So are Aaron Rodgers and his three MVP trophies. Add Ben Roethlisberger and his two Super Bowl rings. Russell Wilson's on the list. Matt Ryan and his MVP trophy. They're there too. In five NFL seasons, Dak Prescott won a playoff game once, beating the Seahawks in a wildcard game three years ago. That completes his list of amazing accomplishments and justifies his status as the third highest paid player in the league. Only Kansas City quarterback Patrick Mahomes, 
45 million, and Buffalo quarterback Josh Allen, 43 million, earn more than the $40 million average the Cowboys will pay Prescott over the next four seasons. When the Cowboys kick off the NFL season tonight facing Brady's Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Prescott will walk out of the locker room feeling the full weight of a contract that says he can single-handedly turn a loss into a victory. But can he? Does anyone really believe Dak Prescott is as potent a force as Mahomes, Rodgers, Brady, Wilson, or even Josh Allen? No one believes that, nor should they. Prescott is a solid franchise quarterback playing for an owner desperate to prove his former coach wasn't the brains behind the Cowboys' 1990s dynasty. Prescott is overpaid because Jerry Jones is still locked in a feud with Jimmy Johnson over credit. Desperation compromises decision-making. It turns hoes into housewives, mm. reality TV stars, and dementia patients into presidents, Ouch. and average quarterbacks into lottery winners. This past offseason, Prescott hit the jackpot, baiting Jones into a $160 million contract for production that warranted half of that. I'm not mad at Dak. He and his agent, Todd French, should be congratulated for playing Jones like turntables at an old school rap concert. DTMD, AKA Dak and Todd making dollars. Oh God. They kept it strictly business, Jim. <laughs> oh God. They completed unfinished business, conducted business as usual, remembered that business is never personal, and now they're back in business. Did you catch all those, my references? Yes. The first five albums of the iconic rap group, EPMD? If not, you get the Bozak. All right, but let me get back to Dak. He's going to learn that life as a $40 million quarterback is more difficult than life as the underdog overachiever. The 2016 fourth-round draft pick was a feel-good story when, as a rookie, he replaced injured Tony Romo and led the Cowboys to a 13-3 regular season. Everybody loved Dak's underdog story. And for the next four years, the media rooted for Dak to become the next Tom Brady, Russell Wilson, or Joe Montana, late-round quarterbacks who became superstars. Instead, Dak has more in common with Kirk Cousins, Matt Hasselbeck, and Mark Brunel, late-round quarterbacks who, or, who are or were solid NFL starters. Dak is no longer being paid to be solid, though. His contract demands that he be great. Happiness is based on expectations. The same people who have been satisfied with Dak's solid performance will now be disappointed when the third highest paid player remains a solid quarterback. The list of disappointed people will include Dak's 52 teammates. Excuse another rap analogy, but Prescott will be known this year as the notorious D.A.K. More money, more problems. You're nobody until your teammates kill you. Wow, bro. Starting tonight <clears throat> against the defending Super Bowl champion Buccaneers, Dak's teammates will expect him to be worth an additional touchdown. Aaron Rodgers is going to make $33 million this season. His Packers teammates believe he's worth every dime because they believe he's a touchdown better than every quarterback, not named Mahomes, Brady, or Wilson. Do the Cowboys believe that about Dak? Everybody always wants more money. Few people want or can deal with the extra responsibility that goes along with more money. Most people make excuses. Most people collapse beneath the weight of heightened expectations. Oh, they have occasional moments of greatness, but the day-to-day -day grind of greatness eventually grinds them out. That's what I expect to happen to Dak over the next two seasons. $40 million is too much weight for Dak Prescott. His teammates will be the first to see it. Initially, they're gonna grab the bar and help him lift all that weight. It won't take long for their agents, friends, wives, and girlfriends to say, why are you helping him all the time? He's supposed to be helping you. Mm. He's making $40 million. Mm. Once that happens, the feel-good story will disappear. 
NFL reporters won't be able to ignore the whispers among agents and Dak's teammates that the Cowboys employ an overpaid quarterback. Because of the salary cap, being an overpaid player is far worse than being a bad player. You can bench a bad player. An overpaid teammate, he costs you money. Dak Prescott would be a far better quarterback if he had the same contract as Tom Brady. Brady's worth whatever he demands. He's on a two-year deal that will pay him $50 million. Brady gets it. In order for Dak to win in the postseason, Dallas needs a defense that equals its offense. Cowboys don't have that. Can't afford it. To win consistently, they're going to have to score 30 points per game. That pressure is going to crush Dak Prescott. Mm. Now that's a fire. That's fire. That's nice. That's nice. So that was my prediction about Dak's season. He came out on Thursday night, played a pretty good game. I thought people made way too much of how well he played. They lost. And I pointed that out on Friday. Oh, oh, uh, Dak Prescott played really well in a loss. He threw for 400 yards in the Cowboys' loss, and everybody's throwing a big parade for, for, for Dak Prescott. He threw for 400 yards. And, man, he had an ankle injury last year. And, boy, that was just fantastic. And, Jason, you said Dak was going to die under the weight of the contract. I didn't say week one. I said over time. I said Dak's going to show flashes of greatness and being able to live up to that. But what I said is he's not a $40 million quarterback. And over time, I said distinctly, over the next two years, that contract is going to catch up with Dak. And I stand by that. And I'm not the type of person that's going to throw a ticker tape parade for any professional athlete making $40 million dollars who loses a game, and then I wake up and go to ESPN.com in the morning, and Dak Prescott and how well he played is the lead story in a loss? Have y'all ever heard of Herm Edwards? We play to win the game. No one, have you ever seen a coach stand up in a press conference, we play to throw for 400 yards? in a loss. That's not the point of football. And if you watch the game last night, which I did, <laughs> that could have easily thrown three interceptions last night. Easily. And I'm not talking, the one interception he did have, that's on the wide receiver. He dropped the ball and it turned into an interception. Uh, but there were two or three other passes could have been interceptions easy. And, and, and LeVar, I'm going to bring you in now because I believe I stated that Dallas will need to score 30 points to win football games. Uh, how many points did they score last night? I, I don't think what it was, was it, 30. 28, 20, 20, 29. It was high 20s. It was high 20s. Yeah, 20. It wasn't 30. And just like I said, they need to score 30 points to win uh, ball games. And it didn't happen. Uh, so are you one of these people that want to come on here and gloat because Dak threw for 400 yards? I thought you were better than this, Whitlock. I thought you were better than this. <laughs> you know, I, better than no, what? I'm not. I'm, I'm not going down the road that you just set up like Rabbit did on 8 Mound. Come, come and say everything that you thought I was going to say before I said it, getting ahead of it. I'm actually not coming on here. To, to give uh, door prizes, to, to give runner-up trophies. It, it, it was a loss. It was a losing effort. But if I'm taking away from the game and, and that takeaway is focusing in on what your story represented yesterday on Dak Prescott, there still has to be an origin to every scenario that plays out. And yesterday did not represent an origin of, of sorts for your your argument point against Dak Prescott. I mean, I just think that that's just valid. He did not show anything that would say he was not an elite quarterback in that game yesterday. I wasn't more focused in on 
his injuries and and how they looked. I was focused on on Dak Prescott and how he he performed and and what what he brought to the table. And he brought leadership to the table. He brought hope to the table. They were in that game. Well, however you want to call it, however you want to dice it up, that was a competitive game. In fact, you couldn't have drawn up a better first game for an NFL season if you tried. And and so to me, to see him uh, perform on the level that he did against the team that he did it against, uh, it was a losing effort. But would I be positive on on what Dallas looks like? I don't think they're going to have to score 30 points all season long to be able to win games because we saw a Dan Quinn defense that looks different. They will get better. You can tell they will get better. All of the signs are there for this defense to actually be a very, very sturdy and strong defense if they can stay healthy. So I was, I came away impressed. Obviously, I was more impressed with Tampa uh, and, and their ability to be able to deliver whenever it is that they needed to deliver. Tom Brady looks like he's playing better football than he did at any other point in time during his career, which is, I mean, we were in the same draft with, like he was in my draft. Now I have to say I was in his draft, right? I went number two in his draft. Um, and I'm okay with saying that at this point. I went number two in Tom Brady's draft, right? Uh, they look good. They look good as advertised. They have a lot to work on as well. There were things that you could break down on them. But looking at the way Dallas played, I think Dallas is going to be a, a more competitive team than what I had originally anticipated them to be. And honestly speaking, I don't think that Dak's 400 yards were empty calories. I, I thought that his yards represented them having a chance to win the game and Tom Brady having to have a two-minute drill to, to give them the victory in this opening game. Uh, Tom Brady needed a two-minute drill to win this game because Chris Godwin fumbled the ball at the four-yard line. Or you could say the uh, defense ten- forced a, a turnover. Well, it's and all they in did, perspective, right? No, no, no. That's a good point. Okay. Uh, they would have scored don't 40 points. Us. You know, I played defense. I, I know no, you played offense. I know you was an offensive lineman. But wait, don't discredit defense. If a defender delivers defense. a big play, okay, he delivered a play. He hit him. That was a hit. He didn't drop it. It wasn't an unforced error, right? It was a forced fumble. Leonard Fournette's, the Leonard Fournette's interception, basically, they got credited to Brady. That's on Leonard Fournette. That was. Hitting right in the hands. It did. And so if it, wasn't, if it wasn't for the mistakes that Tampa made, to me, some of them unforced, and Godwin should have just got down and should have never put himself in that position. In my Tampa could have easily scored forty some odd points, and that game could have looked completely well, different. You're not you're listen. Easy. I, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, because you're not throwing I out don't field goals. Want, you're not throwing out I Dallas field goals. I don't want to diminish that completely, because okay. I do think he played well relatively could have had a couple of interceptions in my opinion but he did play well but they lost the game they did and that's the point and i'm looking at dak had some comment that's like is he in the right head space uh for this marathon this is a 17 game nfl season and i'm looking let me see if i can find this headline i I could uh uh-oh i don't i don't lost it it was from early in the morning. Dak on big return. I'm a better player this year. He is. I'm just sorry. You don't say that on the day you lose. You wait until Wednesday, midweek, when you're on to the next game. But right after a loss, these guys, it feels too it. good. Losing feels too good for them to be anybody to be said, oh, I'm a better player than I was last year. Yeah, I know we lost, but I'm focused on me. And to me, that's another indication that contract's in his head. He's thinking about justifying that contract more than he is thinking about winning games. He's here, the most popular man, perhaps, uh, on the internet or ever since I started doing this show. Vody Bauckham, pastor, educator, author, uh, public intellectual, uh, 
disciple of God, I think would be fair uh, <laughs> to, yeah. to say. Uh, Vody, I'm just telling you, ever since I moved into this space, I have previously been, I made my name and reputation in sports. But once I moved into this space and started talking about sports and culture and politics and, and wearing my faith more on my sleeve, the number one name, everyone, you gotta meet Vody. You gotta <laughs> connect with Vody. God, he, he played football like you, Jason. And, Bob. and it made me do some homework and start asking people. And uh, you might be the smartest person I'm ever gonna engage with. Uh, and and I really you, whoever you've been talking to, you need to keep talking to them. <laughs> <laughs> you just from doing my homework and what you represent and the boldness with which you represent. I'm honored to have you here uh, in studio today and to be able to engage with you and hope that uh, honestly w w on Wednesdays I do a show called Harmony and I bring in two ministers. And, and we always ask that whatever we say, we hope that it edifies the audience and yeah. glorifies God. And I say that today in, in more earnest, <laughs> probably more earnest than I've ever said it. I hope that the discussion we have here touches people and reaches people because man, do you got a lot to say uh, that needs to be heard. Well, man, I really appreciate you having me. I'm, I'm honored to be here. So. Let's start with your book, Fault Lines, uh, for the, the social justice movement and evangelicism's looming catastrophe. It's a heck of a title. <laughs> <laughs> I think I agree with it. Yeah, yeah. But tell us about your book. It came out in April. It's, it's doing well. It's doing gangbusters. But tell us about what you were trying to get across in this book. Well, you know, the title Fault Lines, I grew up in Los Angeles. Um, on a fault line and experienced uh, an earthquake or two in my, my day. And as I looked at what was happening with the social justice movement, as I looked at what was happening within evangelicalism, within churches, um, it just seemed to me that people were standing on two different sides of a fault and that the earth was moving um, and, and that it was going to be catastrophic. Um, of course, I think we see now that it is being catastrophic. Churches are dividing, you know, ministries, universities, seminaries, uh, people are losing their jobs over this. Um, and not only within the church, but also within the culture at large. To me, and, and you're an expert, I'm a layman, but to me, I, 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 ministers in the church, they're not standing on the word of God. They have fallen on the wrong side of the fault line. There's there is an earthquake going on. And uh, I, I said Tony Evans gave a sermon or a speech to radio broadcasters. And I, I, right now I'm struggling with the title of it. But he was talking about covid and that God is shaking things up and that it's not a time for spiritual punks is what those yeah. were Tony Evans's words. And that's so much what I believe, that I'm looking, in my view, at ministers fold and start taking the gospel and fitting it to this woke social justice culture. And no one's willing to stand on what's clear as day. Yeah, in some cases, it's people not being willing to stand. But in other cases, it is the fact that the people who are willing to stand are being silenced. They're, they're not being given uh, a platform unless they have a platform significant enough on their own. Um, nobody's putting a microphone in front of them. Nobody's listening to them. Nobody's shining a light on them, especially if you're black, because right now the, the narrative is that black people think and feel a certain way about these issues and that the black people who don't think and feel a certain way um, are, are not really black, They're trying to curry favor with white people, so on and so forth. So anybody who's speaking intelligently about this from the wrong perspective um, usually ends up finding themselves in a place where there aren't many microphones to talk to. You've raised a point that I think applies to you. I think you're one of the most important voices of this time. 
and people aren't rushing to put a microphone in your face. I, I, I don't see you, I mean, obviously cable news and things like, you should be the voice of this time. Do you feel that frustration as it's directed towards you, that they're trying to silence you? Um, sometimes, but you know, I, I'm, I'm not really looking for you know that 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 kind of a platform, and I have been able to get uh, this message out there. The book is a you know national bestseller, um, so you know I've been able to 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 get around that. Um, there are others who haven't been able to do it, but you know what's interesting for me is that even though people have sort of shut certain doors, there are other doors that they can't shut, and the fact is that. This is a conversation that is going to be had. Um, you know, we're seeing it in, in schools now as people are, you know, standing up and speaking out against critical race theory and, you know, things of that nature. Um, it, it, it's going to happen. It's unavoidable. So whatever role that I get to play in it, I'm happy to play, um, even if that's, you know, sitting on the sidelines and encouraging, you know, people like yourselves and being a resource for people who do have those opportunities. So you say the conversation's going to happen, but the question is, how's that conversation going to be presented? Who's going to define the conversation? And one of the things that you're brilliant about that, that is like, well, no, as a media person, I get it and understand it instinctively. I'm amazed at how you get it and understand it instinctively in terms of the left or, or atheist or secular culture, they have a way of defining the conversation that puts us at a complete disadvantage. They, let's talk about social justice. Yeah. And the, the police are uh, unjust in their behavior yeah. towards blah, blah, blah. And, and so, and that's the discussion. And, and so that basically locks you into a narrative of like, oh yeah, the police are just terrible and that's the problem. You're right, let's talk about that. When the reality may be something completely different. Yeah, you know, for me, um, I, I came to faith late. You know, I was raised by a single teenage Buddhist mother, didn't hear the gospel till my first year at university. Um, ended up very early being drawn toward apologetics. Um, which is really a, a defense of the faith, if you will. So, you know, that's where my training and emphasis has been in the area of apologetics, in the area of defending the faith, in the area of going into hostile territory and trying to be alert as to how people are attempting to change the narrative, to flip the script and being able to respond to that. So. Part of that is just, you know, the way that I've always come to think about my faith. Part of that is my 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 training. Um, and part of that is just kind of my personality and the way that I look at things and, and, and think about things. And so what I always want to do is define terms. And that's what I try to do in the book is 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 define terms, because when you define terms, then it's harder for people to sell you something that's ridiculous. The number one thing we should be talking about in America as believers or just people that are concerned about the direction the country's going, what should we be talking? You define the terms. What should we be talking about? Wow. Um, I think in a time like this, it's really hard to narrow it down to one thing. Um, as I look at it, especially looking at it as an expat, as somebody who's now living you know, in, a, in another part of the world and looking back at what's happening, what I find is that the unique moment that we're in is unique in part because there is no one thing. Things are going crazy on a dozen different fronts. Um, and so for me, when things are going crazy on all those different fronts, what I try to do is reduce it not to the one thing you know, out there that people ought to be talking about, but the one truth and the one reality, which is that there is a God, the God who created the world, and he created the world for his own glory. And all of these things have the common denominator of they are moving in directions that are contrary to the purpose for which they were created. So I find that if, if I keep it like that and try to keep pointing back to the God who made the world and why he made the world, then now when people are telling me that men can get pregnant 
right? I, okay, I, I can take that, you know, back to creation. Or when people are talking about, you know, what justice is or, or what's not just, or not, I can go back to our creator because he's the one who defines justice. Um, or, you know, a number of other, you know, things. I find that when, you know, everything seems to be spinning out of control, I just come back to the God who created the world and the reason that he created the world and bringing everything back to that. And so the way... I interpret or I wouldn't say interpret what you just said, but the way I try to apply it as a journalist and someone who's made a career in journalism, I try to I think our number one topic should be truth. Yeah. That truth is under attack. Yep. And and I see it in so many different examples. And again, if you have any faith at all any faith at all. And I, it's like when you see the truth being attacked, you should get very concerned. Yeah. When people, when the whole country gets comfortable with, hey, you know what? They're birthing people. Yeah. And men can have babies. Like red lights and just like you, like, holy cow, we're living in a, this isn't God's world we're living yeah. in in any yeah. way. Cause, and, 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 and I apply that to a slightly lesser degree but when all the data says like, hey, the police actually harm very few people yeah. in general, black people in particular, but the media is making us believe that, oh, as a black man, you can't even go out of your house because the police may kill you. It's yeah. like, that should be like a warning sign to you like, whoa, the devil's in control. Yeah, and that, that that issue there is really what prompted me to write this book. My, you know, my, I'm I'm serving in in Lusaka and Zambia, and went there to help start a university. And Jason, I live in a country where, you know, you ride down the street and the police will have a you know roadblock up somewhere, and they stop you. Sometimes we call them lunch money stops, right? And they're stopping cars and they're looking for violations. If you have a violation you pull over to the side of the road and pay your fine in cash. I'm living in a place where people get caught, you know, stealing and they get a beat down from the police. And, you know, everybody knows that that's what happens. You try to film it and you'll get a beat down too, right? And so when people in that part of the world began to ask questions about whether or not I was afraid of the police and, you know, started, you know, repeating this narrative about, you know, police hunting and killing black men. Uh, That was just a bridge too far. I was like, you guys have no idea. Black people in America are the safest, freest, most prosperous black people on planet Earth. There's a reason that black people are not trying to leave America, but black people from everywhere where there are black people are trying to get into America. And that's because we know better. I'm going to skip ahead because it keeps you keep referencing and I want to. Why are you in Africa? And and, and I say that selfishly because like, man, we need you here. I I need you here. You got to be the backbone of fixing what's going on here in America and protecting what you just described. Like this is the destination for black people. Yeah. Why are you in Africa and not here? You know, I had an opportunity six years ago to go to Zambia and help start a university. It's a classical Christian, liberal arts, biblical worldview university. Um, It's a unique opportunity in a unique place and something that I was really suited for. Um, And the the time and the season was right. Um, You know, we have nine children, excuse me, and, um, you know, six years ago, my wife and I, you know, took the seven who are still at home and and, uh, and 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 moved across the water and haven't and haven't regretted it, you know, one bit. And in terms of being able to have influence here, you know, it's interesting. I, I did. I, I did think about that. But I'm here three or four times a year. Um, I'm still, you know, writing, publishing and speaking on these issues. And because of the time in which we live and because of, you know, the way media works and social media works, um, I still have an opportunity uh, to have that influence. Um, And, of course, my wife believes that the Lord took me away so that I I could do that without getting in all the kind of trouble that I would have gotten in had I stayed. (laughs) 
I, I, I'm going to go back at this again just out of pure selfishness. Yeah. This is just Jason Whitlock. It's, it's an ungodly question I'm about to ask but, or to go back at this again. But because America, to me, has been a light unto the world as it relates to Christianity, that's why I feel like protecting this home base here is so important. And so do you ever... Because and trust me, I'm sure there's front lines in Africa and I know the work you're doing over there is important. But I feel like the culture war and the destruction of Christianity, like this is the front lines, because if they can bring down America, it's going to be much easier to do across the globe. Am I right? Wrong for thinking? Is that a narrow focus? You know, I think people have thought that a lot historically but you know the center of gravity of christianity has always moved you know jerusalem athens um continental europe uh great britain you know and then you know the united united states uh the kingdom of god uh is undefeated uh, and and not only is it undefeated it's undefeatable um and so for me i i have to view myself as a citizen of the kingdom i'm proud to be an american um i'm 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 grateful that you know, God in His providence um, saw fit that you know I would be born in the United States and have the opportunities that that afforded to me and give me the magic passport, you know, to be able to go uh, to and fro, you know, in all the places that I can. But I think what the Lord has done here uh, is important not only because of what it has done in the United States, but also because of the kind of influence and impact that that's been able to have around the world. And I mean that both in terms of the gospel witness that has gone forth from the United States um, and also just in terms of the American witness, you know, that's gone forth. Um, And so I, I, you know, I don't see it as an either or for me. I see it as a both end. You've given me a lot to think about. I'm so glad I asked that question and follow up because you've just blown my, like, it can move. To other, and maybe I need to be looking for a place. <laughs> I need no, to go wherever. <laughs> we all can't go. We all can't go. <laughs> when you find the new location, let me know. I'm gonna be there uh, immediately. Uh, and 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 so you may have already answered this, but I just want to follow up to the second part of the title of your book. Describe the looming catastrophe that you see for evangelicism. Yeah, I, I think the looming catastrophe is no longer a looming catastrophe. It's a present catastrophe. And, and I think it's a couple of things. You mentioned one. I think when you hear people who were, were faithful ministers of the gospel um, now sounding like, um, you know, Ibram X. Kendi and, and, and you know, Kimberly Crenshaw, um, I, I think that's hugely problematic. I think another thing is, like I said, the fact that there is this massive divide that's taking place. It's happening in churches, it's happening in denominations, it's happening in you know universities, um, it, it, it's happening in families that are being torn apart you know, over this issue. Um, it's, it's no longer a looming catastrophe, it's here. Critical race theory. You s- it's already taken root and overrun Africa? You, you- well, no, not as, mu- not as much critical race theory. Um, you know, Marxism has, you know, the ideas of cultural Marxism have. Um, critical race theory is, is, is a very American ideology. Mm, okay. Um, you know, it was, it was, it was, it was born here. Um, and, and really like the first tenet of critical race theory is the idea that racism is normal, that it's ubiquitous. Um, and critical race theory came out of critical legal studies. Um, and critical legal studies, again, is about America and American law. Um, so it, it very much has to do with the assumption that America and American law is inherently racist, that American culture is inherently racist, and that racism is ubiquitous um, and, and really incurable, if you will, in the American context. And so my argument is they're making that argument to, to argue America's a failure. Yeah. It was founded in ways that determined from the, that it was going to be a failure. So we must write a new constitution and we must try Marxism, communism, 
socialism. A am I right for th that that's the end? Yeah, you know, critical theories are always inherently revolutionary in their nature. I mean, that, that first word critical kind of points to that, right? Um, and so they are trying to, to, to find and problematize whatever the thing is that they're applying critical theory to. Um, and so, you know, when you're talking about critical race theory, there is a sense in which, you know, you, you look at the, the, the Marxist assumption of oppressors and the oppressed. What we have to do is we have to find out where that oppression is, where that oppression is coming from. And then we have to sort of overthrow or overturn that oppression. Um, and in the United States, if it's our founding, um, if it's so-called majority culture, um, then that's what has to be revolutionized. You say Marxism has taken root in Africa. Could you explain to the layman, because I think for a lot of black people, it's like, I don't, Marxism's like something, a word that they hear, but don't fully understand, don't understand the dangers. I've been constantly trying to harp on like, hey man, this isn't harmless. That yeah. the people that started Black Lives Matter say they're self-trained Marxists. Again, do you understand Mar Karl Marx's theory is hostile to religion? That, so if you could explain some of the things that you've seen or see over in Africa as they've adopted Marxist theory and just try to help black people understand like, Communism, Marx said, this yeah. stuff is dangerous. Yeah, and really when it comes down to it, Marx's ideas were, were called conflict theory. And essentially, his ideas came down to the fact that all of life could be summed up and defined as a struggle um, and a struggle over limited resources between the people who have those resources, right, and means of production, and the people who don't. And the people who have them um, will inevitably um, oppress the people who don't. Um, and so as a result of that, the idea is that you would move from capitalism to something like socialism or communism where you didn't have that dynamic where everything is shared equally, right? From each according to his ability to each according to his need, right? Uh, so it's the idea of collectivism uh, as opposed to the idea of individualism, the idea of communism as opposed you know, to the idea of capitalism. Um, and that, that sort of collective idea, it would be the dominant ideology on, on the African continent and in much of the world, really. And so a lot of people hear the word collective and, oh, that's a good thing. We're all in this together. And we are the world. Until they come for your stuff, right? So for example, uh, the average American is wealthier than 70% of the rest of the world. Not wealthy Americans, the average American is wealthier than 70% of the rest of the world. What a lot of Americans don't realize is that when you think about this within America and this idea of wealth redistribution within America, there is a global sense in which people feel like that needs to happen. And whereas in America it's, you know, white people and whiteness, right, that is seen as the oppressor, globally it's America and the West that's seen as the oppressor. And so that redistribution is a redistribution from America and the West to the rest of the world. Now, when they start coming for our stuff, all of a sudden then people are not going to be as positive toward collectivism. Voted the other reason why, you know, I'm such a, a fan is because you present uh, Christianity in, in a masculine way and you appeal men to be men. And, and that's so much of the church, particularly the black church, is, is being dominated by women now. And I see ministers catering to women and, and there's this attack on masculinity. Yeah. And I believe we are at the forefront. I, I look, you're not here to, to witness it as much as I am, but like everything in our media space, from television commercials to movies, it's like, if they can put a gay black man, a feminine gay black man, 
in any commercial, in any plot storyline on yeah. a TV show. Is and I, I've been literally telling my friends this for ten years, yeah. and they're just now waking up to it. I've been like, "Hey, man, are y'all not watching what's going on? The the plan they're laying out for your little boys it, is there's a lane that we're being shoved into." Uh, do you? Am I right? Am I wrong? Am no, I, I absolutely see that. And what people don't understand is an attack on masculinity is an attack on the God who created us. He created us male and female. We are not the same. And there is beauty in the differences between male and female. And the, the problem is that when you attack masculinity, you are actually attacking a preserving force. If you don't have strong men in a culture, then what you have is uh, young men who are not kept in check. And what do they do? They wreak havoc. And when those young men wreak havoc, you start looking around and what do you immediately want? You immediately want someone or something strong enough to bring that into order again. So it's like we're creating a problem that we're going to have to run around and try to solve. And the way that that problem is solved is by the very thing that you attacked in the first place. So, you know, men are a preserving force. Men are a force that defends society, that defends the family. So when you attack men, you are leaving things that need to be defended in a position where they're not being defended. So we're actually cutting off our nose to spite our face. Delano Squires comes on this show a lot. Uh, and so he was on here earlier t- today. And we constantly talk about um, men uh, shunning responsibility. Yeah. And, and we see it, and I, I particularly like our position on abortion to me is an irresponsible position that this leftist liberal feminist point of view <laughs> that's her decision i don't control that that's just on her. that's on her whatever yeah. she decides i'm good with and we just had this conversation today i just that's an irresponsible point of view to have yeah. and it goes back to what you're saying is like when you take that irresponsible position and now Abortion, particularly here in America, if you go look at the percentage of how many black babies are being destroyed yeah. in the womb, you're actually co-signing your genocide and death. Yeah, 12% of the population, almost 30% of the abortions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and in most of, most of our major cities, more black babies are aborted than born. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it is absolutely problematic. And now, now you touch me where I live, okay? Um, my, my, my wife and I, um, we've adopted seven children. We have nine children, seven of them we adopted. And the reason that we got into the adoption world is because we just went from telling young women, give your baby life, to telling them, give your baby to us. Um, and, and, and we realized that we needed to put uh, our money where our mouth was, so to speak. Um, and so this is something that is incredibly near and dear um, uh, to my heart and near and dear um, to my family. And you're absolutely right. And it's so ironic that on the one hand, we are up in arms about the police hunting down and killing black men, which is not the case, but nobody's saying anything about the abortion mills that are killing black children in the womb. And harvesting the organs. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, so, yeah, I, I, that, that, the irony of that um, is, is something that is, it, it's sad to say the least. I don't know if this is a proper question, but I've, I've thrown it at people recently, and, and I want you to give me a biblical either justification or say, hey, Jason, you're wrong, blah, blah, blah. But I, I've, I've said to people, we have this arrogance in America, like whew, those people 100 years ago, 150 years ago, wow, they were bad people. Look how good and superior we are. Yeah. And I've started to ask people, I was like, man, I would love to talk to God and ask him, slavery or abortion? 
which group of people? One group co-signed for slavery, one group is co-signing for abortion. I wonder how God feels about that. Who, who's the superior of those two groups of people? Yeah, it's interesting. And the Bible is very clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And ultimately, when you look at it, you're seeing the sinfulness of man and the inhumanity of man, you know, towards man that is a byproduct of our fallenness and our fallen nature. And whether it was, you know, slavery and we, you know, you say 150 years ago, you know, there are more slaves in the world today than than there have ever been. Um, and, and and most of those slaves are are, are black and brown people. Um, and, and they're also being enslaved by other black and brown people, which has also happened throughout most of history. Um, and so I think what we have to do is take an honest look at the fact that we are fallen people and that we're being reminded constantly that we are sinners in need of a savior. Um, and, and sin is not something God takes lightly. Sin is something so serious that God crushed and killed his only begotten son in order to atone for sin. That's how serious sin is to God. And so whether it is abortion or whether it is slavery or whether it's, you know, you know, sex trafficking or whether it's, I mean, you, you, you fill in the blank. Um, it, I think one of the dangers that we have is when we look at these big sins, we have a tendency to think that the sins in our own heart are not as significant. So I look at the slaver, uh, or I look at the, you know, you, the, the, the person who's, you know, doing abortions or whatever. And it makes me think that what I've done is somehow not significant. When the fact of the matter is, um, I am as guilty before God, apart from the person and work of Christ, as the slaver and the abortionist combined. Mm. You gave a speech today in Lebanon, the uh, the politics of sex conference. You talked about critical sex theory. <laughs> what is critical sex theory? Yeah, that was uh, that was a kind of a play on words that uh, the organizers sort of gave to me. But the point was that you know the emphasis of individuals like you know Karl Marx and Sigmund Freud and and others. Um, it, it, it's not just in the areas of economics and it's not just in the areas of politics, but the way that we, um, the way that we think, the ideas that we adopt have consequences in every area of life. And especially when it comes to sex. And I think we're seeing that now. We're, we're seeing that in a number of ways and in a number of areas, not the least of which, you know, we've already alluded to earlier, is the whole, you know, transgender phenomenon that we're experiencing right now. Um, I, I said today, you know, it boggles the mind. I remember having conversations, um, I want to say four years ago, because the Olympics were a year late, but five years ago um, about the Olympics being in jeopardy because of the whole, you know, transgender issue. And I said, what are we gonna do? You know, when Olympic athletes are identifying as, you know, and of course, five years ago, people were like, ah, you know, you're being ridiculous, you know, yada, yada, yada. But we had transgender athletes, always male to female, right? Um, that were competing in the Olympics this year. Um, you know, we've, we've got transgender athletes who are taking uh, medals away from women and taking state championships away from women and taking scholarships, you know, away from women. And I think that it's so ironic that, you know, the big argument was that, you know, the patriarchy was the problem. Right. And, and women needed to be protected from the patriarchy. But now it's liberals and feminists and progressives that are actually you know, attacking women in these ways with our desire to somehow deceive ourselves with this whole transgender ideology. I, we'll end on this now. I can keep and talk to you forever. But one of the other things I, I've been arguing in, in relates to the transgender thing, we're creating a society that whatever you feel, whatever desire you have, we must legalize it, normalize it, and make it part of society and culture. And I see that as satanic. Yeah. I see that Aleister Crowley, do what thou wilt. And that's what, I, that's what I see. And I try to explain to people, you know, not everything is for everybody. Yeah. And, and, and that 
really mature, responsible uh, people that try to have any obedience to God, they try to tame their desires because we're filled with sinful desires. And, and there has to be limits placed on, because Vody, I'm telling you, six times a day, I'd like to eat McDonald's. <laughs> God has shown me that, well, Jason, that'll lead to gluttony yeah. and health problems, yeah. and you won't be able to reach your full potential. Yeah. And, and so I have to put limits on my desires. And, and again, I, can, I don't have to limit it to food or gluttony. And li- I got to limit my lustful desires because it's not healthy for me. And it's, it's, it's kept me from finding a wife and being married. And so I, I, this whole mentality that we've gotten into that whatever, all of your desires have to be met, I see, them, I see that as satanic. It is satanic. It's idolatry. It's the idolatry of self. It's, it's selfism. Um, you know, it, it is the idea that, uh, you know, we don't believe in a God, but if we did, he would be me. Right. Um, and, and, and our desires are, are put forth as the. <laughs> that is awesome. Because <laughs> that is what they. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. And that's how you get your desires put on a pedestal. Right. And you, de- you define things as good to the degree that they meet your desires. And it goes back to what we talked about earlier. You know, when it comes to all of these things that are happening, I come back to the fact that there is a God who created the world. He created it for his own glory and everything exists for the glory of God. And anything that is out of line with that is absolutely sinful and satanic. Vody, thank you so much uh, for granting me this interview audience. I I say this in all seriousness. I I actually think you're younger than me, but man, I would wish you were here in America to be my mentor. Uh, We need you. Uh, I can speak for Delano. Delano's in D.C., married with three kids, believes all the stuff you're talking about. Uh, Uncle Jimmy's usually here with me. We need you, man, and I I just keep pumping out the content, the books, and, and keep doing you, and you've got me now looking where I can move in the world. Because it's Christianity's leaving America. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go where, wherever it's next. I'm going. Well, don't run, don't run, man. Don't run, don't run. No, really, this has been a pleasure, I, and I, I'm really excited about the opportunity to be here. Grateful for what you're doing. Encouraged by what you're doing. And um, you know, I, I know how difficult it can be. Um, so you'll, you'll, you'll be in my prayers. Thank you so much. But that's it, and that's all for us. Hey. Hit that five-star button. Give us a great rating here on Apple and across all podcast networks. And go to YouTube.com slash Jason Whitlock and join the Fearless Army. All right, we'll see you on Monday.